So now I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Melissa Osborne. She is an associate professor at Case Western Reserve University, recently relocated from Atlanta back to Ohio. Um, and she specializes in HIV and viral hepatitis co-infection and also cares for HIV mono-infected patients as well as um, those with HCV mono-infection. Um, she's infectious disease trained, but also dabbled in some hepatology for a while, did some training there as well. And um, today she's going to talk about investigational agents for hepatitis C, and I think even give you a little glimpse of what's going to come up next week at the ASLD meeting. So I'd like to welcome Melissa. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here today uh, to give you an overview of what's coming in hepatitis C. And this is a very exciting time for hepatitis C. Uh, there's a lot of new things coming. Uh, it's probably the busiest time that we've had in hepatitis C in the last 10 years. Uh, just to give you a preview uh, of just how exciting it is, the uh, national meeting of the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases will be starting later this week in Boston. And it probably should be called the hepatitis C meeting, given all that hepatitis C is playing a role. Uh, hepatitis C will be the topic of one presidential plenary, uh, which features the best abstracts of the meeting, uh, one symposium, 10 out of the 37 parallel sessions, which are oral abstracts, uh, and one hepatitis debrief at the close of the meeting. Uh, hepatitis C was also the subject of 22% of the accepted abstracts, and 148 of those, or 7.2 of the abstracts, were specifically on investigational agents for hepatitis C. And this is really just what's new in the last six months since the European meeting in April. Uh, so there's lots coming and lots of exciting things happening. Uh, it's hard to summarize all that's new in the next 30 minutes, so I'm really going to focus on the agents that are closest along uh, to being approved and the things that are closest um, or furthest along in development. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Wiles talked a little bit about the structure of hepatitis C, but I want to review this because this will uh, highlight the areas where drug development is, um, is going. Uh, the hepatitis C is, um, is translated into a polypeptide, uh, and it consists of 10 different proteins that are broken down by both the host proteases and the viral protease. There we go. Um, and the host protease breaks it down into uh, all of its different component, components. And all of um, these different ones are going to be targets for uh, your new drugs. Uh, the hepatitis C life cycle was also reviewed by Dr. Wiles. Uh, the hepatitis C has several different receptors on the uh, host cell, uh, CD81 and um, several co-receptors. It's endocytosed by the uh, host cell and then transported to the endoplasmic reticulum where the replication complex is made on there. And NS5A, NS5B uh, are portions of the replication complex that are targets for drug development. Um, the uh, the the, um, excuse me, the, um, the uh, hepatitis C is then translated and um, the new hep C particles are released uh, from the cell. 
Uh, the different classes of investigational agents um, are the um, direct acting agents. Uh, the, there's three different classes, uh, the protease inhibitors, the polymerase inhibitors, and the NS5A inhibitors. Um, there's also host-targeted antivirals, um, and these are the cyclophilin inhibitors, um, novel interferons, and then other agents, small interfering RNAs, TLR agonists, and therapeutic vaccines. Um, the ones that are farthest along and have the most development are the NS34A proteases. Uh, these are peptidomimetics. And there's two broad classes based on structures. Uh, the two that are um, in uh, use right now are telaprevir and bosaprevir. And these are both linear ketoamides. Um, there's also macrocyclic inhibitors. And most of the new protease inhibitors, or the second generation protease inhibitors, are uh, macrocyclics. And these new second-generation protease inhibitors have the benefit of being either once or twice daily, uh, which is a benefit over the three times a daily protease inhibitors that we have now. And they have much more favorable side effect profiles. Uh, you'll hear from Dr. Peters later on about the side effects associated with uh, telaprevir and bosaprevir. And these second-generation protease inhibitors are uh, much easier to use and have less drug-drug interactions. Uh, this uh, shows the development pipeline for the protease inhibitors. In phase three, we have uh, cimeprevir, acinaprevir, and then uh, just since I turned in the preliminary slides, this one has got its new name of faldaprevir. Uh, just going into phase three uh, recently is ABT450. Uh, just behind in phase two are several other protease inhibitors. Uh, these are being developed both in combination with PEG interferon and ribavirin, and also in combination with other direct acting agents. Uh, the genotype activity of the protease inhibitors is primarily genotype 1, uh, and this is where most of the drug development has been targeted towards. Uh, Telaprevir and bosaprevir do have some activity against some of the other genotypes, as well as some of uh, the protease inhibitors in development. Um, some of them have not been studied in all of the genotypes, so just because uh, it isn't depicted here, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not active against these genotypes. Uh, there's one protease inhibitor in phase two development that does have pan-genotypic activity. Uh, one comment on the study designs as we go through some of these phase two trials for these agents. Uh, I did not go into detail about the different phase two study designs um, because they're very complicated in some cases. Uh, they, all of the phase two trials did use different doses and durations for the uh, designs. Almost all of the trials used the response-guided treatment that we've heard a lot about already today. Uh, and this uses the extended RVR to determine the duration of treatment in most cases. Uh, and this is having a negative hep C RNA at week four that remains negative through uh, the remainder of treatment. Most of the studies um, did include cirrhotics, um, but some studies did exclude cirrhotics. None of them allowed decompensated liver disease. So cimeprevir, or TMC-435, was studied in two uh, phase two trials, the PILLAR and the ASPIRE. Uh, the PILLAR trial was naive patients, 
and it was studied in conjunction with interferon and ribavirin. And compared to the control group, the SVR rates were 81 to 86 percent. Now, you'll note that the SVR rate in the control group of interferon and ribavirin was much higher than what we've seen in prior trials uh, with an SVR rate of 65 percent. Uh, most of the patients in the pillar trial uh, who received cimeprevir, 75 percent in each group, had an RVR and were eligible for response-guided therapy. In the ASPIRE trial, uh, experienced uh, patients were given uh, cimeprevir with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. And as we've seen with the other protease inhibitors, relapsers did better than partial and null responders uh, when retreated with a protease inhibitor, with SVR rates of 85% in relapsers versus 75% and 46% in partials versus null. Uh, Faldaprevir, or BI201335, has been studied in the silent C3 and silent C1 trials. Uh, these were both in naive patients, and you can see that in both cases, uh, the SVR rates were between 65 and 70 percent. Uh, again, most patients uh, were able to get response-guided therapy uh, with an extended RVR uh, of around uh, 70 to 80 percent in both of the BI groups. Asinaprevir uh, was studied in a phase 2A trial. And again, we see high SVR rates, 80 to 90 percent, compared to the control group of only 46 percent. Uh, this drug has mostly been studied in combination with other direct-acting agents. Uh, and we'll see some data from those studies a little bit later on. One thing that we've seen with telaprevir and bosuprevir is the development of resistance on therapy. And there is some cross-resistance among the protease inhibitors that is uh, tied closely to their structure. Uh, telaprevir and bosuprevir, as I mentioned, are both linear uh, protease inhibitors, and they have overlapping resistance patterns. So if someone fails therapy with one, uh, you don't go back and treat them with the other one. Uh, the macrocyclic protease inhibitors also share resistance patterns. Uh, and there is some cross-resistance there. The R155 uh, mutation does confer cross-resistance to all of the protease inhibitors. Uh, it's unclear how these resistance patterns will affect uh, treatment going forward or how, will it affect, or how it will affect sequencing uh, and retreatment of patients who fail uh, treatment with one of the direct-acting agent regimens. Uh, it's probably not going to be uh, like hep or HIV therapy because hep C does not have the ability to archive mutations. Uh, so most patients will revert to wild type after treatment within one year. And uh, when they're retreated, these mutations don't necessarily come back. Uh, the NS5V polymerase inhibitors are, uh, come in two varieties, the nucleotide inhibitors and the non-nucleotide inhibitors. So NS5B is an RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, and it has a right-hand motif uh, with one active site in the palm subdomain, and then thumb domains and uh, finger domains uh, that have binding sites for some of the drugs. So the nucleotide inhibitors uh, bind at the palm active site and are incorporated into the growing polypeptide chain and cause chain termination. And the, uh, this is not genotype specific, and so the nucleotide inhibitors have pan-genotypic activity. 
And they also have a very high barrier to resistance, uh, and so they are particularly attractive for drug development. Uh, the non-nucleoside inhibitors bind at one of several different domains, uh, and the um, thumb sites or some of these palm sites, uh, these are not genotype specific, and therefore they're uh, most active against genotype one. They also have a very low barrier to resistance and are mostly being looked at in combination with other direct acting agents. So the nucleotide analog that's furthest along in development is sofosbuvir or GS9797. Um, unfortunately, this class has been plagued by toxicity problems, and several of the other ones that have been uh, gone far in development have been put on FDA hold for toxicity problems. Uh, there are several other promising ones, however, that are in phase two development. So fosbuvir uh, has been studied in uh, naive patients in the atomic and in the proton studies. And um, you'll see that they saw high RVR rates in naive patients of uh, 94 to 98%, and their SVR12 rates were also very high, 88 to 90%. Uh, the proton trial uh, was also in naive patients and looked at various doses of sofosbuvir in combination with pegylated interferon and ribavirin, and again, saw very high SVR rates uh, for genotype 1, 88 to 91%. Uh, the electron study was presented at last year's AASLD and in the spring at this year's EASL, and it had a very complicated study design, uh, trying to find out the best combination of sofosbuvir, interferon, and ribavirin uh, to use in combination both for genotypes 2 and 3, and then later on for genotype 1 patients that were hard to treat. And although this study had very small numbers in arms, it made a big splash at these meetings because of the response rates that they saw. And no matter how long the interferon was given or in what combination, the SVR rates were very high, 100% all down the line for genotypes two and three. It was only when they tried to do monotherapy uh, with sofosbuvir uh, that the SVR rate dropped off in genotypes two and three. And this was treatment for 12 weeks, in some cases with all oral therapies. When we got to the more difficult to treat patients, uh, genotype 1 null responders, it became important to add that interferon in, only 11% response rate uh, with sofosbuvir uh, and ribavirin alone. Uh, but in naive patients with genotype 1, 88%, 12 weeks of treatment, sofosbuvir and ribavirin. And then genotype two and three experienced also did very well. So even though these numbers were small, uh, there's quite a bit of excitement about this compound, uh, and there are combination studies uh, with it going forward. The non-nucleoside polymerase inhibitors um, that are in development, as I mentioned, are mostly being used in combination with interferon ribavirin, and usually with another direct acting agent, a protease inhibitor. Uh, only uh, one just recently went into phase three development, the ABT333. Uh, and I'll show you more data with the combination studies looking at some of these compounds uh, in the combination. So the uh, nucleotide or nucleoside uh, analogs have pan-genotypic activity, as I mentioned. 
Uh, the non-nucleoside inhibitors are primarily active against phenotype 1. And again, they have a low barrier to resistance, so they need to be used in combination uh, with at least peginephron and ribavirin and possibly with uh, other direct-acting agents. NS5A inhibitors uh, inhibit the NS5A uh, complex. And the exact function of NS5A is uncertain, but it probably plays at least two roles uh, in the virus life cycle. And we know it has an essential role in viral replication and is part of the viral replication complex. Uh, it also has a role in the modulation of cellular signaling pathways. There's no human homologs of NS5A, uh, and most of these agents have broad genotypic activity. Uh, the NS5A inhibitor that's farthest along uh, and has entered phase three development is Decladosphere. Uh, there's also a few more that are now in phase two development. And again, most of these agents are being studied in combination with other direct acting agents. Uh, Decladosphere has been studied on its own uh, with peginephron and ribavirin in the command one and command two. Uh, these were all in genotype 1 patients. Uh, the COMMAND-2-3 trial uh, is a study of decladosphere in genotypes 2 and 3, and that data will be presented later this week at the AASLD meeting. Uh, in the COMMAND-1 trial, uh, they had more modest results than we've seen with some of the other newer agents with SVR rates of around 65% uh, compared to 36% in the control arm of just peginephron and ribavirin. Uh, as we've seen with some of the other uh, studies, genotype 1B seems to do better uh, than genotype 1A uh, with response rates around 80 to 85 percent. Uh, the COMMAND-2 study uh, was experienced patients treated with decladosphere, and the SVR data have not been reported yet, uh, but data through week 12 uh, show rates um, of complete EVR of 44 percent. Uh, in partial responders and about 30% in null responders. So the, um, although not a direct acting antiviral, uh, peg interferon lambda or recombinant IL-29 has entered phase three trials. Uh, this is a novel interferon uh, that's hoping to replace peg interferon alpha. Uh, it acts on the interferon lambda receptor, which is a more tissue specific than the alpha interferon receptor. And uh, the lambda receptor is expressed primarily on hepatocytes. And uh, because of this, it has fewer adverse events uh, than interferon alpha. Reduced neuropsychiatric symptoms compared to peg interferon alpha, less flu-like symptoms, uh, less thyroid disease, and less serious autoimmune diseases. Uh, the EMERGE trial was a phase two trial of peg interferon lambda. Uh, and it compared peg interferon lambda to peg interferon alpha. Uh, both of them are given weekly. And uh, this is the genotype one data. And if you compare the two different interferons, you can see that interferon lambda had much more, uh, much less serious adverse events at 3% versus 7% uh, in the alpha. Uh, but if you break it down into specific symptoms, there was much less flu-like symptoms uh, with interferon lambda, uh, less musculoskeletal symptoms, uh, and less cytopenias uh, with interferon lambda. The overall SVR rate was similar between the two compounds, 37% uh, 
versus 37% uh, with interferon alpha. The cyclophilin inhibitors uh, take advantage of the fact that uh, cyclophilins are host factors important in hep C viral replication. Uh, and we've known this because uh, observations have been made that in transplant patients, cyclophilin A does have some hepatitis C activity. However, it also inhibits calcineuron and has some immunosuppressive effects, and these outweigh the antiviral effects uh, because of the adverse effects associated with immunosuppression. Uh, but there have been uh, development of inhibitors of cyclophilin that do not inhibit calcineuron. Uh, they have pangenotypic activity and a high barrier to resistance. Uh, the drug that has entered phase three is alisborovir. Uh, it has had some toxicity and is on an FDA hold currently. Uh, most of this toxicity has been seen when it's been used in combination with interferon. Uh, and so it's now being looked at to be used in combination with other direct acting agents uh, in interferon sparing combinations. Uh, there are other, uh, a few other cyclophilin inhibitors in earlier stages of development. Um, and we'll see uh, if these move forward. Uh, really, the direction that the future of hep C treatment is going is really combination direct-acting antiviral regimens, uh, either with or without interferon and ribavirin. Uh, as we saw with the electron trial, it's uh, hopeful that this will lead to sh shortened durations with superior SVR rates. Um, we will be combining different agents with different mechanisms of action and different resistance mechanisms. Uh, but it's important to note that not all agents will go well together. Uh, it's probably not going to be like HIV where we have multiple classes of medicines and can pick and choose which ones uh, we put together uh, interchangeably. The regimens are being studied together and will be used in, uh, in the combinations that are studied. So all of these combinations uh, have been studied uh, with peginterferon and ribavirin, and most of them have showed uh, very good SVR rates, even in difficult-to-treat patients. You can see all of these were null responders treated with asinaprovir and decladosphere in combination with peg and ribavirin, 95% SVR rates. Uh, null and partial responders treated with peginterferon, ribavirin, uh, denoprevir and mericitabine, uh, which is a nucleotide inhibitor, 87% SVR rates. Uh, so it looks um, like we're going to be able to achieve fairly good response rates here. All of this data has mainly been presented in abstract form. Uh, there's been a few pilot studies and preliminary data uh, reported in journal article form, uh, but not very many patients. Uh, what we're really aiming for uh, is to get rid of interferon because of all of those side effects that are associated with it uh, and because some people just can't um, tolerate interferon. Uh, and this is um, a fairly busy slide, but it's meant just to point out all the different regimens that are being uh, investigated. And uh, as I mentioned, not all of the combinations necessarily go well together. Uh, there's a broad range of SVR rates depending on the combination. Uh, some don't do as well, uh, for instance, 41% um, SVR rates overall uh, with interim uh, results with certain combinations. So I think uh, it's going to be important to look at all of the different combinations individually 
uh, not necessarily mix and match. There's two studies in particular that I'd like to point out uh, that will be presented later this week at AASLD uh, that, are, um, that will be uh, very exciting. One is this regimen uh, of ABT450, ABT333, ABT267, uh, uh, boosted with ritonavir in combination with ribavirin. Uh, and they saw response rates in naive patients of 99% uh, and response rates in null responders of 91%, all genotype 1 uh, with an all-oral regimen. Um, the second is uh, decladosphere with sofosbuvir or GS7977 in ribavirin. Uh, again, very high SVR rates, 100% in genotype 1 and 91% in genotypes 2 and 3. Uh, so I think... Uh, Hep C will be changing, and the face of how we treat it will be changing in the next couple of years. Uh, the timeline for this, um, most people uh, think that these interferon-free regimens may be ready as early as 2014. Uh, a lot of it will depend on how quickly things can move through the FDA. Uh, so in summary, the hepatitis C landscape is changing every day. Uh, the future is uh, going to bring higher response rates with less toxicity. Uh, however, it's still going to be very expensive. Um, someone brought up the issue of cost of the protease inhibitors earlier. Uh, I don't think that these new agents are going to be any less expensive. Uh, now we're going to be using them in combination. Uh, is it possible to have 100% cure rates without interferon? I think that's uh, the direction that we're heading with some of these new regimens. Uh, prior null responders and cirrhotics remain challenging, uh, but the future looks promising even for these patients uh, with some of this new data. Uh, there are still challenges and un unanswered questions in 2012. Uh, when do we wait for these newer agents? Who can we afford to kind of warehouse uh, in preparation for these new regimens? Are there people that we can forego therapy altogether on? Uh, what do we do with people who fail uh, with direct-acting agents? What sequence to use? Uh, what's the meaning of resistance? And then special populations and treatment uh, for transplant patients, HIV patients, patients with kidney disease. Uh, most of the new agents are um, not specifically being studied in these populations right now, although uh, the companies are trying to work out drug interactions and everything as, uh, as they go along. So I think the data may be lagging a little behind for some of these special populations. Um, as I mentioned, things change by the day with these agents. There's always new trials that are going into phase three and new trials being announced by the companies with combination regimens. Uh, here's some resources uh, and websites that have fairly up-to-date information uh, about what's new in hep C and um, and new trials that are being announced for uh, resources for your patients. And I'll stop there. Don't go anywhere. Okay, we have a few questions after that. Uh, great overview of a, a difficult and uh, frequently changing topic. So the first one is on PEG Lambda. So it says the eMERGE trial did not put uh, interferon lambda with protease inhibitors uh, are are any trials in the pipeline to do this, or are we moving away from interferon regimens to interferon-free only? Uh, I think everyone would like to get rid of it altogether. There are some studies putting PEG-lambda with some of the newer agents. Uh, 
it will remain to be seen uh, what role interferon will have in the future. Uh, I think by the time PEG interferon lambda gets there, we may be over the interferon era. Um, I think you kind of answered this, but when can we reasonably expect to um, have in clinical practice new combination regimens? Uh, I think reasonably writing a prescription for it. Um, like I said, I think, I think 2014 is a little bit optimistic. Um, I, I have been telling patients three to five years. And then this one is, is kind of along the same lines, but specifically talking about interferon-free therapy for genotypes two and three, and um, when we might have that, and should we be cautious about recommending interferon-ribavirin-based therapy for patients with compensated disease who are genotypes two and three? Can you read it again? That's so, a long question. Yeah. So essentially, <laughs> when, when do you think we'll have interferon-free therapy for genotypes ah. two and three, specifically? So genotypes two and three have been a little bit neglected, I think. Everyone gets excited about genotype one because uh, it's so prevalent. Um, but some of these <laughs> agents do have activity against genotypes two and three. Um, we may not have necessarily all of the tr big trial data to support it, but they do have activity. And you see some of the combination uh, data that I showed you have been studying genotype two and three patients. Uh, so I think in patients with advanced disease, you should not wait for the agent uh, mm -hmm. to be approved. Go ahead and treat with interferon and ribavirin, which still has a good response rate in these patients. Um, it may be too early to tell what's going to be the most cost-effective way to go um, because we don't know how these agents are going to um, play out in terms of price. Uh, if it's going to be 80% response rates either way, um, it may be more cost-effective to treat with the old standard of care. Yeah. You did mention that, the, I mean, the Sofosbuvir data is probably the first one. So their phase three trial in genotype two threes, interferon three was just Rob Varn and seven nine seven seven. I think is nearing completion if not done. Um, so we will have some pricing phase three data pretty soon. Um, can we advocate for studying new agents in co-infected patients in tandem with mono-infected patients? They, or how do we advocate? <laughs> I, every time I see someone from industry, I advocate for that. And they have been doing a better job of studying it earlier rather than waiting for approval and then going uh, back and studying them in co-infected patients. Um, so I think they're doing a better job of it. Um, I think when you see them, you should tell them the same thing. <laughs> I mean, we have with semeprevir and decladosphere. I mean, some of the next generation compounds are, are in actually even phase three studies in co-infected patients, but I think really, as Melissa pointed out, where it's lagging is probably going to be the interferon-free stuff, and that just gets to complexity of drug-drug interactions that we'll hear about later from Dr. Kaiser. But I think anybody else have any questions? Oh, we've got one more coming up. And you can feel free to get up to the microphone, too, if you, if you want to. Tell us your question. But you guys have pretty good handwriting. For Geno 3 with cirrhosis, would you treat with PEG plus ribavirin for 6 or 12 months? Well, that's kind of nailing you with one hair. Well, we have, um, I, we didn't really talk about Geno 3 too much. I don't know, mm -hmm. do you want to, what would you do with the cirrhotic genotype 3? 12 months. 12 months. I think I would. 
Yeah, I think it depends too on, um, that's probably the conservative approach. It obviously depends on on-treatment responses too. I mean, if they, if they were a slow responder and weren't undetectable by week four or um, certainly undetectable by week 12, I think you would definitely extend. Okay, great. Thanks, Melissa.